All right, Exodus 34. If you're able to stand, why don't you stand for the reading of God's word. The first eight verses is what we're tackling tonight. Now, the Lord said to Moses, Exodus 34, 1, cut out for yourselves two stone tablets like the former ones. I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you shattered. So be ready by morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No man is to come up with you, nor let any man be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and the herds may not graze in the front of the mountain. So he cut the two stone tablets, 34-4, like the former ones, and Moses rose up early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took, the, took two stone tablets in his hand. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. As you stay standing, this is a prayer from Exodus 34. Maybe you could just take a look with me. Let's pray it together. The Lord, the Lord God, what is he? Compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. Father, thank you for who you are. This is not everything about every single attribute, but this is what you chose to make known to Moses as you would allow all your goodness to pass by him. Thank you for these wonderful attributes in these few verses here. Uh, They mean so much to us, and we want to have them as our own as we navigate our walk with Jesus Christ. Bless the time tonight, Father. Teach us your ways. Be glorified in both the hearing, the teaching, and the response to your word. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. You can have a seat. Exodus 34, verses one through eight, when the Lord passes by. Now, if you look back just a few verses to the previous chapter, Moses had made a request of the Lord. Uh, Here it is. Moses said, verse 18, chapter 33, I pray thee, show me your glory. Exodus 33, 19. And God said to Moses, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see my face and live. Then the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me and you shall stand there on the rock. And it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand. By the way, the word for blessing in Hebrew in the picture language is the hand that covers. And what's interesting to think about is when, oftentimes when we see a a prayer of blessing, we see the laying on of hands. We see the idea of uh, someone who touches another. Jesus had the children coming to him and he was 
blessing them. This is the idea of the hand that covers. And God's hand covered Moses as he placed him in the cleft of the rock, to, really to protect him from seeing that full glory. The hand that covers. A blessed moment was ahead for uh, Moses, not realized in what we're reading now, but in the section ahead, which is tonight. I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Now that was the promise. Moses made the request, I want to see your glory. Show me your glory. God said, okay, this is what's going to happen. And the realization of that promise happens in this section. This is when the Lord passes by. And we're introduced to the section, now the Lord, 34.1, said to Moses, cut out for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you shattered. Now Moses, when he was coming down the mountain, after receiving the law, the people were below, and what had they done? They had made the famous golden calf, and they were partying around it, and they were Get, you know, acclaiming it as their God that led them out of the land of Egypt. And Aaron was a part of that. And you, got, you all know that ugly story. We've already studied it. And when Moses came down the mountain, he took the stone tablets before they had ever really interacted with them or even maybe seen them. And he threw them to the ground and they shattered. You could say they shattered into a thousand pieces, right? And, and the, the appropriateness of that picture is that the people had broken the covenant. And so the covenant was captured in those words written on the front and on the back. And I told you a little bit about the Hebrew idea of a ketubah or a marriage. And this was a marriage covenant at Sinai. And when they were worshiping the golden calf, they were cheating on God. It was spiritual adultery. It's like, you know, maybe you could imagine uh, marrying somebody, you, you marry one that you've made a commitment to, you say vows at the altar, and you come home the first day after the honeymoon, and there's another person in your bed. Well, that's pretty much on the spiritual level what happened. Moses is still up getting the law. The blood is fresh, you know, of the covenant that's been sprinkled, and the people are committing adultery against the Lord. And Moses did what I think a lot of people would do in a moment like that. If you can personalize this, he was angry. I think his anger reflected God's anger and hurt. And he threw the tablets to the ground and they shattered because the covenant had been shattered. And the question is, what do you do once a covenant is broken? Can the broken pieces be picked up again? Well, in this case, there's going to be no super glue. There's not going to be gluing together of the tablets, but there's going to be a remaking of the tablets. In fact, we could say the covenant will be renewed. Uh, God does not give up on the people, although there were many you know, tenuous moments where it was hard to know which way this was going to go. And God set up his tent of meeting outside the camp and he kind of left a question mark as to whether or not he was even going to go with the people. You guys remember those studies if you were with us. Well, now Moses is told, I want you to cut for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones. If you peek back to 3118, just for a second, Exodus 3118, take a look, it says, 
And when he had finished speaking with him on, up on Mount Sinai, 31:18, he gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, notice, written by the finger of God. Now in 34:1, the two tablets, the second attempt at them, are now cut out by Moses. It would seem that God did all the work on the first go-around. He cut them out and wrote on them. The second go-around, Moses cuts out the tablets, and it does say that God is going to then write on those tablets. But we, we see, for example, in 32, 15, and 16, just to kind of bring home the point, Moses turned, 32.15, he went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets which were written on both sides. They were written on one side and the other, 32.16. And the tablets were God's work, and the writing was God's writing engraved on the tablets. So it was all the work of God. God had cut them out. He had written on them and then given them to Moses. Now, in 34.1, Moses is going to cut out the tablets. And even though it says that God is going to write on them, it is actually Moses that writes on them. If you look ahead in 3427, the Lord said to Moses, 3427, write down these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. And so he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He did not eat bread or drink water. And he wrote, Moses did, on the tablets, the words of the covenant, that is what? The Ten Commandments. Now there's what the Jewish rabbis call the ten words. Go around number one, cut out by God, written by the finger of God. Go go around number two, cut out by Moses and written by Moses. Now you might ask, well, what is the difference? I don't know. I'm not quite sure what to make Uh, the significance of the two in terms of this second go-around. But I will say that I came across something from Riken who says these words. He says, this teaches us something very important about how the Bible was written. There is no contradiction between recognizing its human authorship and receiving it as the word of God. Who wrote the Ten Commandments? Question mark. Did Moses write them or did they come from God? Both answers are equally correct. Moses was the author of the book of Exodus, but he was writing under the direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Thus, the words that he wrote are the very words of God. So that's something interesting. Here's another thing that I was thinking about from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Shane, can you turn me down just a smidge? There's a little echo up here. In 2 Corinthians 3, 2 and 3, it says this. You are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by all men being manifested that you are a letter of Christ cared for by us, written not with ink, but the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human heart. So think with me just for a second. The second go around, the renewed covenant, if you will, is done by Moses. And there's a contrast in 2 Corinthians 3 between the law written on tablets of stone and the work of the Holy Spirit written on our hearts. The difference is you try to keep a written law in your own strength. You just can't do it. But when the law is written on your heart, when you've had a change of heart on the inside, when the covenant has been born in your heart, 
then your desire is to keep it. Because it's coming not from just some external uh, law, written law, but it's coming from within you. Here's one attempt to kind of try to capture this. There, there are some people that have been married and divorced and then they remarry. And I'm talking about the same two people. Maybe you know a couple like this. They got married, things didn't work out, they got divorced, and then they married each other again. The second ceremony can be just as sweet as the first one, but it's different, right? Uh, there's, there's things that have happened since the first one, and you could say this, there was a reason why they divorced in the first case, right? They didn't get along, maybe the covenant was broken, but then they decide to renew their covenant. Some of you have done vowel renewals, and that, that's a little different shade of this, but you're recommitting to what you committed at the altar, you know, decades before or whatever it may be. And so Moses is told to cut the stone tablets, and then there's going to be the writing on them again, as we saw at the end of the chapter. The covenant is going to get a new opportunity. Even broken covenants can be renewed. I know of couples who have gone through some very tough sledding and they've pressed forward. They've been able to move on, even if the covenant was compromised uh, by the goodness of God, by forgiveness, by all those things that we're going to see in the text. So he says, so be ready by morning, 34-2. Come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. Now, Moses had to get ready, and it was going to happen the next day. We, we don't know why the delay, but oftentimes in Scripture, when people were going to have a significant meeting moment with God, there was a time of preparation, a time where they would cleanse themselves and prepare to meet the Lord. And so Moses had to get himself ready, and he was going to uh, present himself to the Lord on the top of the mountain the next morning. Each day, we present ourselves to our king, and we meet with God and commune with him and receive marching orders. And there's many scriptures that talk about that you go to the Lord first thing in the morning. There's even a book out called Sacred Morning, and I don't know a lot about the book, but I heard somebody talking about it and saying that they've, their whole life's been transformed by getting up a little bit earlier. In our case, we get up a little bit earlier if we're going to commune with the Lord. Amen? We're going to spend time with him. And in the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. Amen? So if you can wrap your day in Jesus, first thing and last thing with the Lord, you're going to be doing pretty well. You find, you know, your joy in him. You start your day seeking him. It doesn't have to be an hour. It could be a few minutes. But better to weave your day in prayer than not to. Because a day weaved in prayer won't unravel. And all God's people said, amen. amen? It's all about heart preparation. In the book of Amos, Prepare to meet your God, O Israel, is Amos 4.12. But in that book, if you read Amos chapter 4, you'll see that God tried to get their attention over and over again, and they would not listen. I did this, and you would not listen. I did that, and you would not listen. And then he says, prepare to meet your God. 
Well, every day we can prepare to meet our God by just simply saying, Lord, I'm a living sacrifice. Here I am. This is often my prayer. I don't have much to offer, <laughs> but what I have, I give to you, <laughs> right? So I wake up. I try to set my compass point on the Lord, on what he wants to have happen that day, and that's just a good way to start it. No man is to come up with you, 34.3, nor let any man be seen anywhere on the mountain. That's for their protection. That's God's mercy right there. He's saying, look, if anybody comes up who's not prepared or not part of this, which is you alone, Moses, they will die. Remember the warnings in Exodus 19? Don't even set boundaries. Don't even let animals come up. Nothing. Or they'll die. So God is saying, look, it's you alone, Moses. You come up, tell people, let there be no man, not even Joshua, not even the elders, no flocks, no herds, nothing on the mountain. The mountain will now be sacred for this moment of a thousand lifetimes because I am going to pass by. And Moses is going to get a glimpse of the glory of God in this very moment. And so he cut out the two stone tablets like the former ones, verse four. Moses rose up early in the morning. He went up to Mount Sinai as he had done many times before. As the Lord commanded him, he took the two stone tablets in his hand and the Lord, notice, descended in the cloud. That's the glory cloud. And stood there with him. And he, Moses, called upon the name of the Lord. Amen? The Lord descended in the cloud. Brothers and sisters, this is the only physical description in the whole account. We, show me your glory. I want to see your face. You can only see the back parts of my beauty. I'll cover you in the rock. My, it'll be the afterglow. And there is absolutely no description of God and what Moses saw. Only that God descended in the glory cloud. Do you know when you read the New Testament, you will find no physical description of Jesus Christ whatsoever. No description. The only thing that you will have in the book of uh, Isaiah is a prophecy about the plucking out of his beard. That's why we believe that he had a beard. But we have nothing else. We don't have anything else about the physical description of Jesus. But you know what we do have about him? His sermons, his word, <laughs> his miracles, we have everything that he did and said that was recorded by the Holy Spirit. That's what we have. Now, you say, well, what's the insight there? Here's the insight. The insight is that the way we get to know God is by getting to know his ways and his word. Amen? So, I want to know you. Well, then here's what you're going to find out, Moses. As Moses called upon the name of the Lord, the Lord's going to reveal something to him. This is Isaiah 64, 1 through 4. Listen to it. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as fire kindles the brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make known, to make known, make thy name known to thine adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. When thou did awesome things that we did not expect, thou didst come down, the mountains quaked at thy presence. For from old they have not heard nor perceived by ear, neither has the eye seen a God besides you, 
who acts in behalf of the one who waits for you. Isaiah 64, one through four. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Well, the Lord did come down in the person of Jesus Christ. He rent the heavens and he came down. And never did a man speak like him. Never did a man do the miracles that he did. He made his ways known. It wasn't about his physical description. In fact, in the prophecies of Isaiah, it really says if you saw him, you wouldn't be really impressed with him. He wouldn't have a halo over his head if you saw him in a crowd. There wouldn't be a, one of those pointer things pointing at him. Messiah, Messiah. But you would know him by his words, by his actions, by his grace. And brethren... This is the value that God places on our lives. Your value is not about your physical looks. I know we all like to look as best we can. But the value is in your words and in your actions. What, do, what are you really about? What you will leave behind you is not how good you looked. Because beauty fades, right? Right? The more time goes by, the more our bodies change. But what you will leave behind is the blessing of words, the blessing of actions, the blessing of things that you've done, said, written, etc. And so Moses is going to have this moment. The Lord descends and Moses is calling upon the name of the Lord. What do you think Moses said? What do you think he prayed? Let me ask you, if you were up on Mount Sinai and the Lord descended in a glory cloud, what would you start praying? <laughs> Perhaps something like this. Teach me your ways, O oh Lord. I want to know you better. Have you ever had a moment in prayer where your prayer time just became that simple? Teach me who you are, O oh Lord. Teach me your ways, when we were going through 1 Corinthians 13, the Lord gave me a poem that I wrote and I called it, Teach Me How to Love. If you are love, then teach me what your love looks like. Teach me how to love those around me the way you love. This is what it means to know God. And so the Lord kept his promise six and passed in front of Moses, 34, six. And what happened? The Lord made his own proclamation. And here's what he said. The Lord, the Lord God. That is Yahweh twice. Y-H-W-H is what we have in the consonants. And then the word L. So it would be Yahweh, Yahweh L. What is he? Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. Now what we're going to see and two very important fundamental verses to the Christian faith in Exodus 34, 6, and 7 is seven attributes of God. This moment for Moses has not been about what he saw. It's been about what he heard. And this is what I'm trying to drive home for all of us to see. Moses wanted to see God's glory, but what he actually got was a mini sermon. You could call it a seven-point sermon on the attributes of God. And by the way, all the attributes listed here are what are called 
communicable attributes. What do you mean? Meaning, these are things that you and I can also have in our lives and in our character. And what's interesting is that at this vital moment in Israel's history, the question that's been hovering over the whole account is what's going to happen to this nation? Is God gonna wipe them out? Is God gonna hear the prayer of Moses, blot me out of your book? If, if you you know, won't forgive them, then blot me out instead. What's gonna happen? Is he going with them? Is he not going with or without you? That's the question. What's the answer? Here's the Lord. And what is he? Gracious, compassionate, patient, abounding in loving kindness, and faithfulness and truth. This is who he is. And all God's people said, "Woo!" <laughs> right? Because now, in the name of God, is the answer to Moses' ongoing question of his mediation, of his leading this nation. What's going to happen to this people? And for us, it may be, what's going to happen to me? Because I've, you know, maybe you would say, you know, I... I haven't been maybe true to all of my covenants. I haven't been true to all of my promises. I've made plenty of declarations in my lifetime. I've, made, I've said them, whether it was a Monday morning or a Sunday morning. You know, I, I've made my, okay, this is what I'm gonna do now. But I'm not sure that my track record has always been, you know, 100%. I don't know about how you're, what your batting average is. Moses' request to see God's glory is shown, revealed in God's nature. God, God said to Moses, I will let all my goodness pass by you. God is good. And if you want to know what that means, all you have to do is look at verse 6. He's compassionate, he's gracious, he's slow to anger, he abounds in loving kindness and truth. The Lord is the same, therefore Israel is not consumed. The self-existing God, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh means the self-existing one. You could say, I am the creator, sustainer, redeemer, the God of salvation, compassionate, gracious, patient, overflowing with hased, that is loving kindness and truth. He's the covenant-keeping God. There are no physical descriptions of Jesus in the New Testament, yet Peter tells the house of Cornelius, you know of Jesus our Lord, how he was anointed with the Holy Spirit and how he went around doing good. I will let all my goodness pass before you. Do you know that that was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ? Because he went around doing good. He's good. He died on the cross because all of these attributes belong to the living God and Jesus is God in human flesh. Think about the attributes in verse six. How are you doing with them? Are they yours too? Are you full of compassion? Are you gracious? Are you slow to anger? Do you abound in loving kindness? Are you a person of truth? You know, all of these attributes here are really fruits of the Holy Spirit, right? 
They all come from the Lord living his life through us. Lamentations 3.22 says, The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning, right? Great is your faithfulness. Jeremiah 31.14 says, I will fill the soul of the priest with abundance and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. The Lord doesn't say anything about his holiness, anything about his power, anything about his glory, anything about his perfection. Why? He didn't need to. It was on display on the mountain in the glory cloud. He didn't have to say, the Lord, the Lord, really shiny. And I was like, yeah, I know. The Lord, the Lord, holy, holy, holy. Well, Moses already had an idea of his holiness. But what does he say? The Lord, the Lord, gracious, compassionate. Do you know the God that we have trusted in and the God that we proclaim? This is who he is. This is the sovereign God. Now, there's going to be other attributes I'm going to tell you about that round this picture out. He's not just these things. We'll see that in a moment. But Exodus 34, 6 is one of the most important verses in the Bible. In fact, it is quoted or referred to dozens of times in the Old Testament. Let me give you one example. Turn to Psalm 103. Psalm 103. Hold your place in Exodus. We'll come back to it. One of many places that we can point to, but let's just muse on this one just for a second. Psalm 103. The Lord, verse 8, Psalm 103, is compassionate and gracious. What is he? Slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. He himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. In the book of Joel, which is a little further back in your Bible, chapter 2, the book of Joel is all about the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. And the Lord utters his voice in 2.11 of Joel before his army. Surely his camp is very great. Strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. Who can endure it? This is what the Lord says in Joel 2.12. Yet even now declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and a libation for the Lord your God. Back to Exodus 34. Even Jonah said it in a moment of frustration when God 
forgave the Ninevites. He said, I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. And then Jonah says, and now kill me. <laughs> Come on, Jonah. Did you not have breakfast? I mean, what's going on here, right? Now, he said that with some disdain, but this is a constant in our Bibles. The Lord is full of compassion. Look at verse 7 as we round out the text. 34, 7. The Lord is he who keeps loving kindness. He keeps showing it. He is faithful to it. For thousands who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. Those are three different ways to say when we blow it. Iniquity, transgression means kind of a, we dig our heels in when we know it's wrong and we still do it. Iniquity, we go the wrong way and then sin is the more general word. God forgives it all. Iniquity, transgression, transgression and sin. Yet, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Now, all God's people said it was sounding so good until the end of verse 7. Because you were talking about grace and compassion and patience and abounding in loving kindness. And then it says, but <laughs> he won't leave the guilty unpunished. Wait a minute. I'm the guilty. I was reveling in all these wonderful attributes of God until I read verse 7. Now what? Well, you have to know that of the attributes of God, you have to always include justice. Let me give you the seven. God is compassionate. Number one, the word in Hebrew is merciful and sympathetic. He's gracious. The word means undeserved favor. He's patient or long-suffering. We all get that. He abounds in loving kindness, fourth attribute. He's full of loyal covenant love. He's full of truth, the Hebrew word amet. It speaks of faithfulness or truthfulness. He's forgiving. That's the first part of verse 7, which means he even lifts and carries, lifts up and carries away our sins or bears them on himself. Yet, seventh attribute, he is just. He will not leave the guilty unpunished. Now, when we were in Exodus chapter 20, we dealt with this third and fourth generation and that, this has confused some people because we've read other scriptures that say that people are responsible for their own sin and other generations shouldn't pay the price. What's going on here? This is a helpful comment from Stewart's commentary. He says, this has been widely misunderstood. It does not represent an assertion that God actually punishes an innocent generation for sins of a predecessor generation. Rather, this oft-repeated theme speaks of God's determination to punish successful, successive generations for committing the same sins learned from their parents. In other words, God will not say, I won't punish this generation for what they are doing to break my covenant because after all, they merely learned it from their parents who did it too. But to this is contrasted with his real wish to show covenant loyal love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. That's Exodus 20, verses 5 and 6. What's interesting 
is that Exodus 34, 7 doesn't say anything about people who love God and keep his commandments. It just says that he's faithful to forgive. And that's what God does do. He is faithful to show covenant forgiveness. In fact, that's what he's doing with Israel. Just think with me for a second. The generation that Moses leads in the wilderness, what happens to them? They wander for 40 years and they all are laid low in the wilderness. Who goes into the promised land? Only those who are 20 and below. Scholars will argue that that's the age of accountability. God treated the one generation differently than the other one. He did not punish the next generation for the sins of their parents, but the sins of their parents laid them low, and Joshua and Caleb went into the promised land because they believed the Lord. And then the, uh, the next generation is the one that actually crosses the Jordan, and then they take Jericho, right? And they circle the city and you know the walls come down and all of that. But when they get to a place called Ai and it seems like the battle is going to be really easy, there's a dude named Achan who takes some of the, the, the stuff, right, and hides it and God lets them get whooped. And they get whooped because they disobey God. And God deals with that generation on the merits of their own belief and faithfulness to God. Everybody with me? But I will say this. If a generation disobeys God or is in idolatry, etc., and then the next generation continues in that way, then God will deal with equity, we would say, to both those generations. God is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, truth. He is forgiving. He forgives sin, iniquity, and transgression, yet he is just. And he won't leave the guilty unpunished. And all God's people said, now what? Because I am guilty. Well, here's where we find our hope in a new covenant. Because the just one died for the unjust, the guilty, 1 Peter 3.18, to bring us to God. God's remedy for that last attribute listed in these two most important verses of Exodus 34, 6, and 7. His justice is satisfied in the new covenant cross of Jesus Christ. And that's why the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. God has not changed in the covenants. He is the same God in Exodus as he is in Matthew. The difference is that in the new covenant, Christ dies for the guilty and takes the punishment that we deserve. I will not leave the guilty unpunished. And so he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Everybody got it? The seven attributes have not changed, but God has satisfied his justice in pouring his wrath on his son. The Lord, the Lord, full of grace and full of compassion. What will be the answer to this ongoing dilemma of sacrifice after sacrifice, year after year of the blood of bulls and goats? How will we ever satisfy the terms of the covenant? We won't. He does. And now I am in Christ. 
And now the Father sees me through the finished work and righteousness of the Son. And now, since he was punished in my stead, I no longer have to bear the punishment of my sin. God has not changed. All these attributes remain, but he has satisfied his justice at the cross. Amen? And this is why the gospel is such good news for all of us. Turn to the gospel of Mark and we're done. Mark 6. So the apostles have been following Jesus and learning from him and he's been doing amazing things. Mark chapter 6, including feeding the 5,000 plus women and children. And Jesus sends the apostles into a storm, Mark chapter 6, after the miracle of the feeding. It's, uh, we'll pick it up in verse 45 of Mark 6. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat, Mark 6, 45, and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida while he himself was sending the multitude away. And after bidding them farewell, Jesus departed to the mountain to pray. When it was evening, the boat was in the midst of the sea and he was alone on the land. And seeing them straining at the oars for the wind was against them at about the fourth watch of the night. This is what we would consider like early morning hours when it's still dark. He came to them walking on the sea and the Bible says he intended to what? To pass by them. Now he didn't need a ride. <laughs> he was already walking on top of stormy sea conditions. Y'all know it wasn't a placid scene. You know, maybe there's some rocks under where he's walking. Maybe it's a chick. No, no, no. It was so stormy that experienced fishermen were freaking out and couldn't conquer the storm. He was riding on the storm, brethren. He was on top of the waves. He controls it all. And he was intending to pass them by. And you're like, say what? One, he didn't need a ride. Two, they thought it was some sort of uh, spirit. And it was Jesus. What in the world is Mark talking about? May I suggest to you that there is a link from Mark 6 to Exodus 34. And I believe that what you're seeing here is Jesus Christ claiming to be Yahweh. And when he's about to pass them by, it's the glory of the incarnate Son, Yahweh in human flesh, linking himself with Mount Sinai. The Lord, the Lord, full of grace and compassionate, full of truth, abounding in loving kindness. And he says, don't be afraid, it's me, right? And then what did he do? He calmed the storm. And we know that Matthew's account tells us how Peter walked out to him. Sometimes we feel like, you know, we're rowing against the wind in this crazy world. Bow your hearts with me, Father. We, uh, we struggle so much with our sin. Sometimes we're in the storm and things are whipping around and we don't know where we stand. We sometimes even wonder maybe where you are. And we hear the words ring from Sinai and perhaps even 
words echoed in the disciples' heart and mind, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, full of loving kindness and truth. Lord, you're so patient with us. Sometimes you allow us to go through the storms of our own humanity to get a fresh look at who you are and that you're above it all and that the storm is not too much for you. Even the storm of our own weakness, even the lack of faith that sometimes we possess. You say, don't be afraid. It's me. And you came and you calmed the sea and they got to their destination point. And Mark 6.52, brethren, Look at it. It tells us what was going on. It says they had not, the disciples had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves. Would you notice? But their what? Heart was hardened. What? Yes. And the mediator goes up on Mount Sinai and says something perhaps like this. Oh, Lord, forgive the hard hearts of your people. I am here to mediate. Forgive my hard heart. Oh, God, help me gain insight into who you are, into what you're about, into who I am in you. Help me manifest these aspects of your communicable attributes. Oh, God, change me. Make me more like you. The disciples' hearts were hard and they needed to see this God. They were arguing about who was the greatest. They were worried about jockeying for position. And the Lord, the Lord is gracious, full of compassion, patient, kind, loving, good, and just. Oh, Lord, soften our hearts. Teach us who you are. Make us more like you. Would you just take a moment, a Selah moment. Let the Lord minister to your heart. Anything that you just need to lay down at his feet afresh, just do that. And just muse on the beauty of who he is, on the, the good news of the gospel, that everything has been satisfied in Christ. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name.